This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number 7, recorded on April 11th, 2011. I'm Tim Kripe, your host from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, but today I'm in a special location in Wilmington, Delaware, at the Alfred I. DuPont Children's Hospital, part of the Nemours Health System. I'm here with two special guests. The first is... Andy Kolb. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thank you very much. And next is Andrew Knapper. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Today we're going to be discussing their efforts at drug discovery, specifically for pediatric cancers. Andy, can you first start and tell me what your position is here and what your major interests are? Yeah, my my name is Andy Kolb. I'm uh, the director of the blood and bone marrow transplant program here at Nemours AI DuPont Hospital for Children. And uh, I also run the uh, Cancer Therapeutics Lab at the uh, Nemours Center for Childhood Cancer Research. Uh, my main interests clinically are in, obviously, in, in, in bone marrow transplants for a series of malignant and, and non-malignant diseases, as well as um, uh, drug development of new clinical uh, drugs for clinical testing in children with cancer. Great. And Andrew, how about you? What's your job here? My name is Andrew Napper. I'm a head of the high-throughput screening and drug discovery lab here in the Nemours Center for Childhood Cancer Research. So uh, my job here is to uh, is early-stage screening of new uh, molecular uh, new molecules for um, as potential targeted therapeutics for childhood cancer, especially pediatric leukemia and rhabdosarcoma are two two uh, of our um, focuses right now, and uh, as we develop potential candidate molecules for preclinical development, then uh, we'll be working with Andy Cole in, in his cancer therapeutics lab to so advance those to animal testing. It seems to me like this is a great place for these kinds of efforts just driving in, and this morning I see the sprawling complex of AstraZeneca across the street, and we're in the DuPont complex, so there's a lot of history here of industry and drug development, um, do you guys benefit from being in that environment? Yeah, I, I think we do. I think, uh, I think there are a lot of drug companies in the area that, that we're able to partner with, um, and uh, there are lots of startup newer drug companies in the area that have um, small molecules that they're interested in evaluating in, in pediatric patients. But I also think within, within the institution, there's a... Um, uh, a structure and an environment that's that's supportive of this uh, this type of research. So, Andy, can you tell me how you got into this? What what what? Uh, where did you train? What got you into pediatric oncology in general and drug development in particular? Uh, my my interest in, in pediatric oncology probably started in in residency, and I, I think the um, in my pediatric residency, and uh, I think that the. the driver behind that that interest was was primarily the the link in uh, between clinical medicine with with the laboratory and and how important and strong that link is in pediatric oncology we're constantly pushing the envelope through um, clinical trials 
and through uh, laboratory-based research to improve outcomes. And, um, uh, and that, that's really what, what interested me the most from the beginning. I did my uh, pediat- pediatric oncology training at Sloan Kettering, plus a few added years in, um, uh, as a junior investigator uh, within the institute to uh, secure my, my training. Uh, and while I was there, uh, I had several mentors that, that encouraged my interests, um, both in the pediatric uh, uh, transplant side and then also on the laboratory side. My main uh, laboratory mentor was uh, Richard Gorlick, who is a, uh, a sarcoma guy and a, and a cell signaling guy um, in the lab. Um, and I traveled with him. Uh, we moved from Sloan Kettering to a program at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. And through him, uh, I got involved in the uh, NCI-funded pediatric preclinical testing program um, and have been uh, very much involved in that since the beginning and have had additional guidance and and mentoring from from Peter Houghton and and Malcolm Smith to um, outstanding uh, scientists and and really driving and and redefining the field of preclinical testing in, in pediatrics. So those, uh, there are certainly major leaders in the field of preclinical tre- testing, Peter now being up the street from me yeah. uh, in Columbus. And uh, they've been ama- I've been amazed at how that program has been able to really generate data. I mean, there's a lot of drugs that get tested in a lot of different models, so it's been really a, a nice, I assume you feel the same way, that it's been a nice addition to yeah, we, we, we did our first drug in, um, uh, I think, the, the spring of, of 2005. And since then, we've tested, um, I believe, more than 40 agents in, in what we kind of call our stage one testing, which is the testing the drug in, in the uh, 48 different uh, xenograft models at the maximally tolerated dose in the mice. And then several drugs have gone on to additional stage two testing, either um, dose response curves, or dose response analysis, or combination testing. But more importantly, I think that um, many of these these compounds have been translated into um, into clinical trials, and that's the big question about the pediatric preclinical testing program. Is I think the the program itself is asking a very important experimental question, which is whether or not we can take these preclinical data, which are obtained in a very standard, controlled manner in very well-controlled, well-described xenographs and translate that into um, efficacy in in pediatric patients. So of those um, 40 or so drugs that have been tested, um, we've been able to tag and prioritize the drugs that we think have the highest likelihood of providing benefit for uh, children with cancer. Um, and I think just as important are those drugs that, that don't make the cut, those drugs that, drugs that don't show efficacy in, in the pediatric uh, tumor xenografts because then you don't, um, they don't get tested or they don't get prioritized in clinical trials. And if there's a low likelihood that they're going to uh, be of benefit, you're not wasting that valuable resource, which is a phase one or phase two eligible pediatric patient. So, um it's that prioritization of new drugs for, for clinical testing that's the big experimental question with the PPTP. 
And I think over the course of the next couple years, as um, some of these early phase clinical trials mature, we're going to be able to we're going to be able to answer that question. Do you think that um, the program will uh, be sort of a forever program that as new drugs come in, it's they're just feeding the pipeline and it'll keep going, or is there at some point at which um, it'll outlive its purpose? Um, we have, you know, right now the, the drugs that are prioritized for testing are those are the drugs that, that make it to testing through the PPTP are drugs that already have a relatively clear indication for an adult malignancy. So these are drugs that uh, drug companies are required to test in pediatrics, uh, but they're not developing specifically for a pediatric indication. Um, and, you know, from the drug company's perspective, uh, in order to make money off of these drugs, you're much more likely to do so with an indication in an adult malignancy. Um, so we are we are um, doing we're trying to fit drugs that work in adult patients into pediatric patients. And I think what we've found um, is that many of the adult targets, uh, PGGFR or EGFR, um, IGF1R. They work okay in pediatrics, but the, these are not the targets that are driving pediatric tumors. These are um, <coughs> targets where we may get some bystander effect, but they're really they're, these aren't the um, targets for which the tumors are, are dependent for growth. And um, but there are plenty of drugs out there. We have a we have our own pipeline, which is um, full, and we're getting new drugs every month for testing. Um, so I, I would hope that, that the funding continues. What I would like to see happen, um, and this may be a good segue into, into Andrew's work and the work of other um, HTS labs, high-throughput screening labs, is that we start testing drugs that are developed for a pediatric indication, for a pediatric target. Uh, you know, a pediatric sarcoma is, is very dissimilar from a lung cancer, very dissimilar from ovarian cancer. So trying to apply those targeted therapies to a pediatric indication, I think, is falling short of, of what we had all hoped. Um, we were very much spoiled by the uh, by the Gleevec story, where you have a, a very well-defined uh, molecular target that uh, the tumor is dependent upon for growth, um, and we haven't found that uh, a similar story in, in pediatric models. So, Andrew, it sounds like you have your marching orders. Uh, yes, I think that's actually a perfect segue into um, the, the goals of the lab that uh, I'm heading up here. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my, uh, my, I mean, uh, our focus is high-throughput screening, and this is something that I've been doing for many years um, in different biotechnology companies, uh, mostly in the, in the Boston area, and then also as, at an NIH-funded uh, high-throughput screening lab at the University of Pennsylvania. But this uh, is the first time that I've applied this technology specifically focused to pediatric cancer. And uh, I think it's a really exciting development because there's really not very few labs doing, doing this, applying this kind of technology specifically to pediatric cancer. And I think there really are um, some great opportunities for um, specific molecularly targeted therapeutics that, um, that uh, will be active against targets that, as Andy mentioned, um, uh, evolved in the progression of pediatric cancer, but are really different, operate by very different mechanisms from adult cancers. 
So that's um, yeah, that's so, very exciting yeah. and to uh, really focus on what we're interested in clinically. Right, right, absolutely. And I, I think one interesting aspect also, you mentioned about the proximity of, of uh, big pharmaceutical companies in this area. I think overall there's been, uh, there's, there's been a trend towards um, academic drug discovery really taking a, a bigger role in early stage drug development, and I think this is a great example of this and also specifically in the area of so-called neglected diseases, and I think pediatric cancer definitely fits into that. So So how do you manage it financially? This is typically the purview of of big pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. companies to do this kind of expensive high-throughput screening and uh, drug development and chemistry and and so forth. So... um, how can you do that within the confines of an academic center? Uh, that's 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 a great question. I think there's a, there's, there's a variety of factors that have allowed us to do that. One is that the uh, instrumentation has has come down in cost, or at least the the um, it's possible now to do high throughput screening with um, at, a, at a relatively modest cost. We've been very lucky in that we got uh, a generous donation from a local pediatric leukemia foundation, the B Positive Foundation, and they provided funds for high throughput screening equipment. Um, the Moores Foundation has been very generous in setting up the uh, funding the construction of the lab itself. Um, but with those two things, with 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 a, a, a dedicated lab and and some modest um, investment in equipment, it is possible to to do this kind of work. I think at lower cost than has typically been the been the case. And also, there is there is more support from the NIH for this kind of activity because they're recognizing that big pharmaceutical companies. Are becoming more risk averse, or at least are off outsourcing the risk to, um, to in many cases, academic and not-for-profit labs such as. Still, it's um, not hypothesis-driven research, really. Other than the hypothesis that there's a drug out there, you <laughs> that right, can target. Right, right. So it's probably difficult to get typical grants. I would think. Well, that that is a bit of a challenge. That is a bit of a challenge, and one that that Andy and I have talked about a bit. And, and I think that there there are i mean there is a hypothesis it just has to it's it's just perhaps not the sort of typical one that that um, NIH reviewers would expect to see but i think that that mindset is changing to some extent and um, part of the funding project funding we have for the lab is from the NIH um, it's an R21 grant uh, exploratory grant that specifically for development of high throughput screening assays um, focused on on pediatric leukemia on specifically on uh, MLO rearranged leukemia, which is a particularly uh, difficult type of leukemia to Absolutely. treat at the moment. What other diseases are you focusing on? Um, well, so so the um, initial focus was very much on on leukemia, um, but um, Andy and I are working on uh, um, obtaining support for uh, um, for a raptosarcoma project that that Andy's been um, leading for uh, for a year or two now, and and. Uh, um, invited us to join us as the, the drug, high-throughput drug screening component of that. So, so our listeners, if they listen to episode one, will certainly know where the needs are. We reviewed Malcolm Smith's paper from last year that sort of reviewed all of the outcomes of the different types of patients in childhood cancer and how, how the progress has been stalled yeah. over the last decade or two and um, and where, where certainly there's a need in rhabdomyosarcoma and, and and other such diseases. I guess for our listeners, could you take us through the process about how this happens? Right, right, yes. Um, so so it, it's it's essentially, I, I kind of liken it to um, having a huge box. You, you, you know what the, where the lock is to the front door of the house, but you've lost the key. You have a huge box of keys, and uh, 
you have to search for the right key and eventually you find it. It really is that it's 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 that kind of thing in the, the sense that the lock is well, the, how many keys are there? Uh, there would be anywhere from a uh, hundred thousand to a million. Okay, that's a few um, keys. So it's quite a lot of keys. <laughs> so it's obviously something you can't do by hand, just picking them out by hand. So that's where the technology comes in. Um, uh, really, the two, the, the three, I guess, three key aspects to the technology. One is is um, uh, so-called liquid handling, which is delivering the sample. The, the, all of this screening is done in uh, microtiter plates. Which are, um, uh, for those that are not not familiar with that, small plastic plates with any, uh, anywhere from 96 to 384 to 1536 wells per plate. So, and, and how big is the plate? So the plate is is about um, about six inches by three inches in size. So we we do most of our work in 384 well plates. So as you can imagine, the wells are pretty small to fit into that uh, dimension. So liquid handling is a key. Some of it can be done by by hand, and there's electronic handheld um, pipetting instruments that can do that. But we also have um, instruments that can operate fully in a fully automated fashion. Um, another key thing is the detection. With with such small sample volumes, typically about 10 microliters, um, need very sensitive detection technologies. So fluorescence is used a lot, luminescence. And then the third component is the data analysis. Um, as you can imagine, that if you, if you have anywhere from 100,000 to a million uh, potential um, drug candidates screened against one particular molecular target very quickly the, the numbers of data points uh, um, increase very quickly so so having good um, uh, data analysis tools are important too and there again that's another example where the cost has come down remarkably it used to be that it would it would really require an investment of a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars just in data analysis now there's some great packages out there for a fraction of that cost how many people does it take for an operation like this from start to finish? Um, well, so currently, currently my group is um, that there's there's um, four of us, including my, myself, um, two postdoctoral fellows, and, and a and a staff scientist. And um, it's remarkable what what um, what we can do. It's a relatively small, small group. Relatively small. Um, uh, a kind of industrial scale high throughput screening lab might be anywhere from ten to. 10 to 15 or even 20, but that's really not necessary for what we're doing here. A relatively small group. But ideally, um, it would be it would be great if at some point we could get to maybe you know, six to maybe a dozen people. But but so uh, we can do a lot with what we have already. And with that crew, how long does it take to get through 100,000 keys? Well, so the screening itself is, is is very rapid. I mean, we we could do that in anywhere from two weeks to two months, depending on the complexity of the. Of the of the target, uh, a lot of the work is in the so-called assay development, which is uh, identifying an appropriate source of the target, and that target material might be a purified protein, it might be uh, a cell line, uh, and um, and identifying a detection technology that a, a detection method that appropriately measures um, some sort of surrogate of the disease process that we're interested in. So that can take. That can take anywhere from from a couple of months to a year or two, depending on the complexity. Um, and then the follow up, of course, is uh, somewhat open ended. Once you have the screen done, the initial data analysis can be done done in a month or so. But then, and, and the confirmation of the activities of the specific compounds that look interesting. But then, uh, from that point on, the follow up work can take um, 
Years, years, exactly. <laughs> well, I assume so. You get yeah. some lead compounds, yeah. and then they may or may not be suitable as drugs, and there probably has to be some chemistry done. Right, exactly. So chemistry is an important component of that as well. And we're we're partnering, uh, we're collaborating with um, uh, Professor John Coe at the University of Delaware um, for, for for that work, and also um, with um, uh, the NIH with with um, one of their uh, screening labs that also has chemistry support. Uh, we have some we have some funding support to interact with with one of those. Labs. So where are you now in terms of the Rhabdomyosarcoma project or the leukemia project? How soon are you going to be handing Andy a, a compound to test in the PPTP? Uh, well, we're we're not we're not there yet, but uh, I th- not to put the I, heat on I, you I here. Think, <laughs> I think in the next I think in the next year or two we'll see a lot of progress. I think we're really uh, really ramping up now. Uh, so, you know, the, the quotes from industry are that any new drug from start to FDA approval is, you know, $1.5 billion in 15 years. So certainly it's a daunting task. Do you right. think you can cut down on that cost or the time in some way? Well, I, th- I, think, I, think, those costs, um, I think those costs are somewhat, somewhat inflated, and, and I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that, judging by what I've read. I, I, th- I think, I mean, the, the, for a big pharmaceutical company, they have huge overheads that they have to factor into, into those, those costs. So I, th- I think for, a, for a, not, a nimble, not-for-profit institution, I think it's possible to um, at least deliver a, a compound into early clinical trials for, for a tiny fraction of that cost. And then think, perhaps have them take over at that point? Would that be the paradigm? Um, that, that, that's, that's certainly uh, certainly a possibility. As, as Andy mentioned, the difficulty with pediatric drugs is um, that there's not really much um, uh, you know, prof- profit potential there for a, for a pharmaceutical company. But there are, it seems as if um, um, many of the um, uh, cancer foundations are uh, becoming increasingly interested in the latest stage development, re- recognizing that that's a challenge. I think also the NIH as well. They have um, their new therapies for rare diseases program, their trend program, and potentially a new institute, as I'm sure, sure we all know. Um, so there's, uh, I mean, that's a somewhat controversial notion of the NIH to be getting into that area, but I think it looks like it's something that probably will happen. You know, there's something, as, a, as an HTS novice, there's something um, compelling to me about doing this type of work in pediatric malignancies and, and 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 we had this conversation recently at the AACR meeting with, with Jeff Turetsky who's had some success uh, he's at Georgetown has had some success in identifying um, EW, EWS fly one targeted therapeutics for, for Ewing sarcoma and and what's what's compelling in pediatrics is that we do have um, these tumors that are driven by the chimeric transcription factors like EWS fly one like MLL fusion genes um, uh, or fusion proteins in in ALL and um, and these are unique targets that aren't going to be hit um, in a industrial screening process um, or an industry driven screening process but these are mutations that the tumors are dependent upon for growth so targeting these mutations um, makes it possible to uh, develop these therapeutics specifically for pediatrics again in a in a uh, academic setting, as as Andrew spoke about. Um, but we also have, uh, you know, we have the example of um, uh, NF1 mutants, for example, where you have a single mutation that occurs in the germline of patients with uh, neurofibromatosis. If that's the event, if that's the genetic diseases, but there are other genetic diseases out there. 
and then you frequently have a tumor that acquires a second mutation. Um, so again, you have a, a tumor with, with two mutations and a control, uh, which would be the parent cell line with one mutation. And these are, these are unique opportunities to develop both cell-based assays, in the example of an of a NF mutant, or um, uh, enzyme-based or protein-based assays, in the example of these chimeric transcription products. And bringing that to um, an HTS lab that is pediatric-oriented, I think, is, a, is an outstanding idea. And, uh, and I think that the chances of success are, are guarded because it is a, um, a screening process. The chances of learning very important lessons about the biology of these tumors and the biology of these proteins is, is, is very high. So, of course, the early days of chemotherapy was all pediatrics with Sidney right. Farmer and others, and I guess we've sort of gotten away from that. Now everything's happening mm-hmm. in the adults first, so maybe we're getting back to uh, being uh, on the pioneering edge uh, and putting pediatric targets up front. That's very exciting. But one of the things that you brought up in terms of the normal control cells uh, is the question I have for Andrew. The issue of killing cells in your high-throughput screen, it's pretty easy to do with a lot of drugs. How do you screen against those that aren't killing the normal cells? Right. Uh, Yeah, that's definitely a very important issue. And and, uh, so uh, with the the cell-based screening that Andy and I have have, have discussed, it's it's very it's really critical to um, follow up with a with a panel of cell lines where you can develop a strategy where um, it becomes clear that you're um, so that you're able to select compounds that um, are impacting the molecular target or pathway that you're interested interested in within the cells and it is possible. So to you're really that. relying on the specificity of the target interaction as opposed to say putting down normal cell cultures in your screen and, and excluding those? That well, get, so it's, it's yeah. an exclusion process, but, it, but it's um, kind of, by, I guess the evidence is somewhat circumstantial because you exclude compounds that are nonspecific and that are, that are um, hitting a variety of cell lines, including ones that, that indicate a lack of right. uh, selectivity of the compound and then narrow down on those that are of interest. So um, with a cell-based assay, you don't know the molecular target, but you can at least deduce that you're you're hitting the target of interest, and that's really the the, the critical. And this question. is something I think that's that's quite important because, as we all know, that so-called targeted therapies that are out there are not always without side effects, and right. it's often difficult to uh, combine them together because they each do have side effects. And I right. think that seems to be one of the unanticipated limitations of targeted therapies. Um, uh, in the clinical experience, right? So far. And to, you know, to, to yeah. give uh, to give Andrew credit where he deserves it, the um, uh, majority of his work has been based on uh, enzyme readouts, not uh, protein-based readouts, not cell-based readouts. It wasn't until I started asking simple questions that that he got into the cell-based work. But the um, you know, when we we use um, uh, RAS-targeted therapies as an example. We mentioned NF. Um, the RAS is a very important driver of adult malignancies, but uh, it has proven to be very difficult to target in uh, using molecules that inhibit specific proteins within the RAS pathway. And for malignancies like that, using a cell-based assay where you can look, um, uh, you're intrinsically looking at all aspects of the signaling if your readout is cytotoxicity, you may in fact be 
um, hitting some effector pathway uh, that is dependent upon RAS and not actually hitting anything within the kind of conceptualized linear RAS signaling pathway. And using that approach, which is somewhat unbiased, um, we, um, uh, we're hoping that we can still, um, although the, the cell-based screenings aren't as clean, using that approach, we're still hoping that we're able to um, pick up compounds that are toxic to cells that are dependent upon RAS for signaling, um, and then work backwards and figure out why. And even if that does not lead to a... Um, a drug, it will lead to a better understanding of the input of different signaling pathways on cells for, for growth. Sure, and the more we learn about all these issues and how these cells are triggered or wired, uh, then perhaps we can design even better targets. Yep. Right, and I think, I think that's, a, that's a good point, sort of uh, back to the question about um, you know, how long it takes the cost and time involved in de- developing a drug, is that um, given that we are um, Research focused and, and to some extent uh, um, academic focused in, in our in our research here does allow us to use compounds that we discover either in cellular assays or against defined molecular targets as tool compounds to understand the biology and I think that's a really important component of high throughput screening in a not not for profit sector that, that we can that's a good point and um, we have to re- remember that that's going to drive basic research and basic right. understanding as well as translational right exactly and I, th- I think I think that also speaks to the question about the, the value that NIH might see in this as, as you know in looking for hypothesis driven research that the, there are hypotheses there that can be tested with um, small molecule tool compounds so I think there's the two the two approaches I mean ultimately I mean our, our goal is definitely to deliver compounds to the clinic for treatment of children, but along that way we can understand a lot about the biology. Great. Well, it sounds very exciting. It's great to know there are people around that are putting their energy and effort specifically into pediatric targets and not just relying on developments in the adult side to trickle down to the kids. So, thank you for all you guys are doing. Thank you for having me here today. Any other comments you'd like to make or wrap up? No, this is great, kids. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Great. All right. Well, I guess that's it for today. Uh, We hope that our listeners learned a lot. I know I did. Again, for those that might be listening in the future, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments or questions. If you have any questions for Andy or Andrew, I could probably forward them along and twist their arm to respond or get them back on for another episode. So please send us a note at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.